Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. This is a chance for local people or people with a local connection to sit down and talk about what is going on with them in the Fishers community. This is a part of my local Fishers Indiana News blog that began in January of 2012. I started these podcasts in 2016 and have been going ever since. Now, here's the latest edition of the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm at Fisher City Hall, and I'd like to welcome back uh, Monica Heltz, the Public Health Director for the Fishers Health Department. Monica, welcome back. You know, uh, you've been making the public rounds here lately, multiple media appearances. I see you everywhere. In fact, the night before we recorded this, uh, you had a town hall Zoom session with Mayor Fadness. I keep telling Mayor Fadness, uh, if he ever decides he doesn't want to be in politics, he could be a podcast host. I mean, he was he's, he's done this multiple times. He did this with you uh, on June the 5th. Uh, so I guess the first question is, I'm, I'm sure public relations is a part of your job, but how do you run your department and still spend all this time trying to get the word out? Well, I mean, I guess I think that um, getting the word out is a critical part of running public health for the public. So <laughs> I, it's it's one of the most important things, I think, is, is letting people know what we're doing and where they can access services. And I thank you for ta- carving a little time out for me today, because I know you are a very busy person, and we're going to talk about some of those things that keep you busy. Uh, I want to start off talking about these vaccine shots for teens as young as 12. That's just mm-hmm. been in the news. Tell us the latest information on that. Um, so we've all been getting the, the news updates. I get them from the New York Times on my phone, um, along with probably most, uh, most residents. But um, we had heard that the FDA was likely going to approve them. They did on Monday. We know always um, that the next step is the uh, Committee on Immunization Practices with the CDC's approval. And then the final step is Dr. Walensky's sign-off. Um, all of that happened yesterday. And Dr. Walensky is the is uh, director. Is the CDC director, yeah. And so she has to... F- Put the file. Usually, once it's gone through that process, that the signature is kind of this uh, almost a foregone she conclusion. Broke, she broke protocol. Um, I. Th- maybe a month or two ago and added another group, I think, to what the ASIP recommendations were. Um, so it is an important step <laughs> um, because we know that she can modify a, a little bit. Um, but so What's the importance of this uh, 12-year-old, this new rule on vaccination? Um, so there's a couple of new things. Um, the, the big one is that 12 to 15-year-olds are now eligible for the booster. So prior to today, it was just 16 and up. Um, an additional um, couple of things that happened this week, and these were approved yesterday, not um, not last night, but pre- prior in the day, um, were that the boosters only need to be five months from the second dose instead of six. So that's a little bit of a difference. It opens up a, a broader category of people. Um, and then uh, they also signed off on a third dose for immunocompromised children between the ages of 5 and 11. So this is something that we've had available for 12-year-olds and older who are immunocompromised, um, is that um, that if you are immunocompromised, you get three doses for the primary series, and then you still get the booster five months later. So the 5 to 11-year-olds can't yet get the booster. Um, but if they are immunocompromised, they will get that third dose. And that's so important for people um, that may have more trouble developing those antibodies. It's interesting to me to hear parents talk and see them on social media because they, they keep pushing for the, the the age to go lower. So these 
these children can receive vaccines. I know there's still work being done on that. Uh, do you Have you had any update on where that's at? Because I know that's a big conversation with parents. So... Um... I don't have any secret source of information well, on this. Well, just what you know publicly I, yeah, would be fine. I, just, um, I get the information the same as everyone else, but I do maybe track it a little bit closer. Um, I know that the studies didn't show um, the level of benefit for results for certain parts of that younger age group that they wanted, so they um, so they uh, kind of changed the had to expand the study basically. So they weren't. We had initially thought they were going to roll out as soon as January. Um, but it looks like it's extended a few months as they see if um, if another dose is needed. Um, I think it was a little bit surprising that um, some of the age groups, and I can't actually remember now because it's been a couple of weeks since I read it. But um, one of the age group, one portion of the age group was having a lower antibody response than they anticipated, which is unusual because the five to eleven year olds had a much higher antibody response. Um, than people older than that, which is why they only need half of a dose. You know, uh, I, again, I'm, I'm a lay person. I read what I can, so I depend on people like you to really clarify these sorts of things for me. So what I hear, what I read, the COVID variant Omicron is clearly different. Mm-hmm. It's extremely contagious. But then generally, and of course there are exceptions, it's supposed to be less serious on the whole. Is that a correct reading, or would you correct that? Um, that seems to be correct from everything that we're seeing. Um, and again, we typically look at where it originated. So South Africa is where we're looking at first, um, because they're all the way, they're really on the tail end of their curve with Omicron, and everything seems to be pointing that way. The data is backing that up. So the more data we have, the more that seems to um, to lay down that evidence that that's an accurate statement. And, and I, the other thing that I'm seeing from South Africa and a few other nations that are ahead of us as far as seeing the Omicron variant, and, and I want you to talk about this because what I'm reading in, in some of the general news media is that what some of the medical professionals in those nations are seeing is that Omicron gets very bad as we're seeing it now in terms of spread, and then it just tamps down pretty quickly. Are you seeing the same thing, or what's your interpretation of that? Um, so we're at the very end of the Omicron spread. So Indiana is one of the last states to even report a case here. So we're nowhere near that here to be able to see um, true data from Fishers or from Indiana. But um, but yes, I think this is very common with highly infectious um, viruses is that they, to use, <laughs> we kind of say that they burn through very quickly. So because they're so infectious, they go through the population very quickly and then they run out of hosts. So you're either hiding and not going out and not potentially catching it, or you're uh, very likely to catch it if you don't use a lot of preventative measures, and it'll basically burn through all the susceptible population, and then um, and then it doesn't have anywhere to go. Is that the same thing as herd immunity, or is that different? Um, so that's completely different, although mm-hmm. it is... Uh, natural immunity is a way to get herd immunity. So um, it may not be as lasting as um, vaccine-based herd immunity. But herd immunity is a different concept where you talk about making sure that a a very large portion of people are immune to something. And we usually use that with vaccines, but it can be achieved through natural immunity too, which is through catching the disease. Um, But when a large portion of the population has been vaccinated, typically, um, 
then that provides a buffer to the people that can't get vaccinated. And the people that can't be vaccinated are those who can't be because they're not eligible based on their age or based on certain medical characteristics that mean that like maybe they're allergic to a vaccine component or they're so medically fragile or they have a condition like Guillain-Barre or something where they can't get um, the vaccine. So it's it's critical for the rest of us to be vaccinated to protect um, those who can't. And you need a certain portion of the population to get that vaccine to provide that herd immunity protection. Unfortunately, that that um, percentage that we likely need for COVID is very, very high. Um, most vaccines are, we can achieve herd immunity at about 70%, but with um, but with COVID, we need a much higher percent. I want to drill down on, on some of that later, but I want to ask you about another part of Omicron that I read about. And, you know, in the early stages of COVID, the data that I saw indicated that very young people didn't tend to get very sick. Mm-hmm. But now uh, I'm seeing all sorts, particularly in New York City, but there are other places too, who have been reporting a, a large number of young, very young people who are being hospitalized with Omicron. What what do you know about that? So I don't know. Um, I haven't seen any data that would support that Omicron is more dangerous for young people other than that it is more infectious. So it's a numbers game, basically. Um, so some of the reports I've seen are that it the hospitalization rates are a third of what they were for Delta. But if you think about how much faster it spreads, you can easily achieve the same number of hospitalizations with you know triple or quadruple the spread rate, so um, it's it's really just looking at what the numbers are, how fast it spreads, how many people are getting infected so quickly, and then you're dealing with much larger numbers. And even if it's a smaller percentage of hospitalization, you still come out at the same or a higher number. So what I'm hearing you say is that uh, numbers are terrible for me. I try my best. But I think what you're saying, and tell me if I'm getting this right, is that if there are more, let's say in New York City, they're saying there are a large number of young people in the hospital. That doesn't necessarily mean that Omicron makes more young people sick. They're just more infected. Is that? There's more people infected. And so So. just because there are more people (laughs) infected, young people are part of that. Yeah. And especially young people that can't yet get vaccinated or haven't been vaccinated. I know we've heard those reports from, uh, I I feel like it was huge. Houston very recently, I heard it yesterday or the day before the children's hospital was quite full, but they also had very, very low vaccination rates in their children, even the children that could get vaccinated. Your vaccination center remains very busy. I I saw that uh, the city has gone to a month to month lease, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to keep that lease for a while, I'm sure. Uh, the mayor is quite proud of of the of this number, and he last time I talked to him, he he brought it up right away. At that time, I think it was about eighty eight percent. I think it's close to ninety percent now of the eligible adults in Fishers have had at least one shot. Is that still where we're at? Um, yeah, um, that is absolutely where we're at, and we should all be really proud because that's all of us. That's ninety percent of our residents that are adults. That's amazing. And you said, I think, at the town hall last night that uh, if you take the entire population, including those who are not even eligible to be vaccinated, we're still at seventy percent. Which in that pool, that's a very high percentage. Am I hearing um, that correctly? Yeah, we're at seventy-two percent of our mm-hmm. entire population, which is also amazing. <laughs> Yeah, and I want to ask a little bit about that because uh, I think, you know, well, let me ask it now since I'm asking uh, that that general area. Fisher should be very proud of this. I think we should. I think in a, the fact that that many vaccinations are out there, but, you know, we're unfortunately we're not an island. 
And uh, there are places not very far from us where that vaccination rate is still very low. And I think that's when uh, I hear your department saying once again, use mitigation strategies. And that means washing your hands and wearing the mask and using the distancing. Mm -hmm. Is Omicron the same distance or should we be even further distanced or do we know? That's a really good question. Um, I don't think I've seen anything about the distance for spread, just the high infectiousness of spread. Um, so we have to assume that you could spread it more easily from a shorter distance or from a further distance, right? So, um, but I haven't seen anything measuring the droplet spread. We know that it lodges uh, more in the throat and the upper respiratory tract than in the lungs, um, which is what makes it more infectious. It also makes it less dangerous since it's not eating away at your lungs. So the vaccination and, and the what they call mitigation strategies that as I just uh, you know kind of listed them that's still the best way to keep uh, keep this uh, under control if at all possible is that what you're still saying? Yeah, and even, you know, as we talked about herd immunity, even with that very high vaccination rate among adults, we're not at herd immunity and we can't be, um, particularly because we are not a bubble um, and we are surrounded by this larger community of largely unvaccinated individuals. Um, and to put on top of that, Fishers is, is, if not the most mobile city in the state, very close to it. So when we track mobility across the state, it's something we looked at a lot early in this pandemic as a health department. We know that we are extremely mobile. So our ability to achieve herd immunity without the help of the rest of the state is um, is much, much less. <laughs> you know, I just saw where Dr. Christine Box has tested positive the second time. A great lady. She delivered my twin daughters. So, you know, I do know Dr. Box and uh, was very thrilled when she was named to that position a long time ago. And of course, she she had no idea at that time she would be at the center of, of all the discussions. And, and she's still there. So if you know that she is being as careful as she could be. And she still picked up mm -hmm. uh, the Omicron, uh, or at least the COVID. We assume it's Omicron. Can I move to testing now? Man, that's a, that's, that's a big issue. Demand is so high. And... Uh, and I know I saw uh, on this town hall meeting you had with the mayor just the night before we record this that uh, your department's doing everything possible to expand and, and uh, testing availability, and you're bringing more people in from other departments of the city. You're trying to raise the number of hours that you're mm -hmm. available for testing, but you have some barriers of which you have no control. Explain what's going on there. Um, so, uh, you know, our, number one is we have limited staff and our staff are working on all cylinders on all fronts. <clears throat> our vaccine site remains very busy with these opening up of the boosters. Um, you know, we expect to be very, very busy over the next coming week weeks. Um, so we have not yet been in a, this is the first time we've been in the position where both sites are functioning at max capacity. Um, so we don't have any extra of our internal staff to draw on. So we are, um, we are utilizing and, and mobilizing fire department staff and other city staff to try to help um, with making sure that we have other hands on deck to make sure that we can offer as many tests as possible. Um, and then we also use two different labs, um, one through the city's private um, private testing for residents, um, and then another through our state uh, contract. Um, and so those labs are also at capacity because testing demand has gone up everywhere. So we're limited by the number of tests that we can offer, at least through our private contract. Um, they also manage all of the uh, a lot of the hospital labs. Um, 
And uh, and then further, of course, you've heard about the shortage on rapid tests, um, which are provided to us by the State Department of Health. And those we are now limited to using for only um, individuals under the age of 18 and individuals uh, over the age of 50. Very good. Uh, yeah, you know, one thing that surprised me, and you mentioned this to the mayor at the town hall, that a lot of the staff you use for some of this testing and vaccination uh, the staff, a lot of them are part-time. Some are retired like I am, and uh, there's kind of a limit in how much they can work, but yet you're, yeah. you're drawing on them, and they're they're working extra hours just to help out. They are amazing, and they have um, been amazing since day one. They have maintained um, great attitudes, great customer service. They step up when we ask them to step up and add extra hours and add extra time time they pull back when we ask them to pull back even though some of them do depend on this income um, you know when we don't need those levels of st- <clears throat> of staffing we shorten the hours and you know they've done it all with great attitudes like like you mentioned a lot of um, our folks are retired um, or working this as a second job or um, we have people that work in the hospitals that are just tired of, of seeing people intubated all the time and wanted to be part of the solution so we hear those stories too and this is a second job for them. Um, where it makes them feel good to be at. But we can't ask them to work six days a week or seven days a week for unlimited hours. Um, so, you know, like I like I mentioned, we're um, tapping all the resources that the city has available to try to make sure that we can expand those hours for testing and expand appointments. And we're checking with all of our suppliers to make sure that we have supplies to continue to offer as many tests as possible. Are the supplies available or are they are you having some challenges there? Um, right now we're okay on supplies. Um, you know, we, do, we can't keep as much of a, of a back supply or a buffer as we would like. Um, you know, everybody's running on kind of short turnarounds but we've been assured that um, that we can get all the supplies that we need to continue offering testing and to even increase our testing appointments. I understand you're going to be working with the schools in the area of testing. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, so uh, brand new news coming out probably around the time that you're posting this um, is that we will be dedicating um all of our city-based appointments for uh, students of our schools and um, staff of our schools. So that option will unfortunately not be available to um, to our residents who are not affiliated with the schools in those ways, not a student or a staff. Um, but we are also doubling the number of appointments through the all Hoosiers testing that we're offering. Um, so we'll have set times for students and staff of the schools that they can utilize the testing with a set block of appointments. It's 460 appointments every day that we're dedicating for this. Um, along with those set times. And then we have our other times that we've been having, the the standard hours we've been open, and we're going to start with a doubling of appointments under the All Hoosiers link, um, and then we'll triple it if we need to, if we feel like we can handle more. Um, because So that will bring us close to 1,000 appointments a day that we're offering. The only other place that is even now offering what we're offering is, is the Speedway at the track, um, and that will put us – at the same numbers that the track is at if we have that demand level and we need to and and that's what we need to do you just may have that demand level i'm sure i'm worried that we will um um, and that that pretty much maxes (laughs) maxes us out well explain again how this works if you have a child in the schools or you are a staff member at the schools uh, using the same uh, facilities the same locations that you use for everyone else explain how that works 
Um, so the s- students and staffs, this would be PCR testing, not rapid testing, but they're dedicated appointments. They'll have to sign an attestation that they are students or staff um, of Fisher schools, um, and uh, they will be able to access a P- PCR test. As our hope is that they'll be able to access it that same day or the next day with all of those dedicated appointments. But then with doubling our other appointments, we're still having lots of appointments for Fisher's residents to be able to access through the um, through the state's portal. It's in the same exact facility and it's at a different it's at a different time it actually makes the process easier for us in the testing garage because we're not managing both processes at the same time which is what we've been doing um and then, uh, and then there have been some changes on the state website that go along with that that allow us to offer the rapid test to anybody who tests through that portal if they're under 18 or if they're over 50. So if you come through and you're signed up on that test and you meet those criteria, we can then offer you a rapid test. Very good. That's, uh, that's, that's very interesting to hear. Uh, I, as I just looked as I was walking in here, I walked around uh, the back of the city services building, and it wasn't out into the street, but you had a steady uh, on the list of cars waiting to get in uh, for a test. We have over 30 appointment slots every 15 minutes, so there will always be a line. <laughs> so the, um, yeah, I, I'm just so saying. It's, it's common to yeah. show for a line, but I think um, I, I know that some people have mentioned that they did not want to stay and wait because they saw how long how long the line is. But we're typically getting four through four cars at a time, and each car only takes two or three minutes. Um, so the line does move very, very fast. Um, so please expect that there will be a group of 20 or so cars because we are offering more than that in the number of appointments. So don't be discouraged. Don't be if, discouraged. If you stay in line, it, it moves yeah. very fast. Good, good to know. Very good to know. When I look at the data each week, one, and I, I love Josh Robinson, every week he has a video and I listen to it as soon mm-hmm. as I can. And I think, well, let's see if there's any news. He has news almost every week now. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't that way for a few weeks, but I, I'm writing a story almost every time I, I watch the video. But one number I always pay attention to, and I know you do too, the availability of uh, ICU beds, intensive mm-hmm. care unit beds uh, in Marion and surrounding counties. That's what's called Area 5. The last I saw, it's as low as it's ever been as, as far as uh, for the period of time you've actually tracked this carefully. Uh, talk about the consequences um, of what this means to people who are dealing with COVID, but not only those people, but people who have other health emergencies that come up and not related to covid Yeah, so I think it's important to bring that up, Um, and that's probably the number that we're most closely watching because that's an indicator of our hospital's ability to function and care for everyone, no matter what your health condition is that you come in with. Um, And we have never seen those kinds of numbers on bed availability and ICU availability, and that's the real danger with Omicron because um, even though it's less severe just from a numbers perspective, like we talked about, if you have that many more people being infected, uh, you can have a much smaller percentage needing hospitalized and you're still going to overwhelm the hospital system. So that's what we're, that's what we're trying to prevent by um, taking these protective measures, um, encouraging everyone to wear a mask and use the distancing, get that booster, everything that you can do to protect our hospital structure. Um, Because when you need it, if you were in an accident or you um, suffered some kind of health emergency, um, you're going to be most likely sitting in that ER for a very long time waiting on a bed because they're all full. I had a personal experience a few weeks ago where I had uh, to go to the emergency room when I was admitted. And uh, 
I want, you know, and, and, and I was taking care of him. For, I was there for about, th- I think, four nights, but uh, they finally took care of me in a non-COVID-related issue. I wondered if th- that had happened a few weeks later, if I would have been able to have been admitted to the hospital. I would have had to wait for that room. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it impacts people who have not been exposed to COVID. Yeah, and um, I think the other thing to mention is that here in Indiana, I think that the coasts that saw Omicron first but also weren't having this the Delta wave at the same time, um, they, they ha- they're going to have a different picture than we have in the Midwest and Indiana where we're still, um, according to the State Department of Health's update that they gave us on Tuesday of the, of the tests that were sequenced last week, only 25% were Omicron. The other 75% were Delta. Um, so we have this Delta wave of hospitalizations, on, and then we're going to put Omicron on top of it immediately. Um, so our hospitals are already very strained, and that's where the real, um, real danger lies. We're in a we're in a different picture than some of those East Coast hospitals that have been that are a little bit ahead of us with Omicron. Um, that didn't have the Delta wave going at the same time. So we're stacking Omicron on top of Delta. And Delta, of course, has some more dangerous outcomes, is filling up the ICU. Um, Omicron's likely to fill up the hospitals, um, the general beds more than the ICU beds. But we're in a very fragile state all around um, as far as hospital capacity goes. Those are some very scary numbers you just, just gave right there, I must say. I want to ask about another aspect of this. Just recently, there has been... Uh, a reduction in the quarantine period announced by the CDC, and it's garnered an awful lot of combat. For example, there was an, there have been some nurses' unions mm-hmm. that have said this is a bad idea. There were some flight attendant unions who said this is bad science. But the CDC has stuck to its guns. Uh, as a public health matter, they say this is the best practice. Uh, tell us what you know about all that. So um, when they did uh, bring out those new guidelines, they also brought it out with some data. So as we've seen um, through the course of COVID and the different um, variations of COVID that we've seen, um, the incubation time has gone down. So I think uh, with the original strain of COVID that we saw, it was maybe five days, and then Delta brought it down to four days. And now Omicron, it looks like it's three days. Um, So that's one number um, that they use, and they have lots of other data in there too with those guidelines, um, but that indicates why it makes sense to have a shortened period of time for um, isolation when you are infected with COVID, when you're actually positive. Um, The highest propensity that you're going to be spreading it to people is two days before you even start having symptoms and get tested (laughs) to three days after. Um, So... So that's your highest risk time. It's absolutely possible that you could still be spreading it after those five days, which is why they recommend that you continue to wear a mask, even if you're out in public, still wear a mask. And they even also recommend that you try to get a test on day five. Now, I know that's a lot to ask people right now when they're trying to get out and about. And and that testing recommendation specifically is for a rapid test. So it's not a, not a thing that most people are going to be able to meet unless you can get your hands on a home-based test. 
My, my wife has uh, made it her mission to find some of those rapid tests, and uh, she's got a few. It's, not, it's yeah. not been easy, but if anybody can find them, my wife can. Now, I know I had just told you that we can't offer the rapid test to anyone between 18 and 50. <laughs> so, but, but there so are. That, they're that's out there. a challenge. But they are out there, and they're in other places. Um, so it is still recommend that you make sure that you're, not, um, that you're not infectious. But you need to use a rapid test for that and not a PCR test. The PCR test, will you could still be shedding dead virus for a while, and the PCR test won't be able to tell you if it's dead or alive and if you're infectious. That's why we recommend the rapid test for that purpose. My mother's 91. Uh, My wife's parents are in their 90s. Uh, They are all vaccinated, boosted, and all that. Uh, But I've been reading an awful lot, and there was just an Associated Press news story that that, uh, posted right before I came out here, uh, about stories of being, you know, fears of COVID spreading from the younger to the older generation. And and uh, we had a lot of advice come out during the holidays, for example. But I want to ask you in general, even though the holidays are over, there are still, you know, gatherings that people are having at the family level. How would you advise families to take precautions in, in getting together, especially when you have the younger and the older generations all together? So I think at this point, you really have to kind of assess your your vaccination status, your comfort level, your risk, um, your own personal risk, the risks of those of your family and loved ones, and what you're willing to to do and what you're willing to not do. So I, I think at this point, it really... Um, there's so many factors involved that we can't give um, very straight answers on this anymore. Um, you know, you have your own personal risk level. Um, you know, I don't have anyone in my household who's at very high risk, but there are people that do, and they're going to make a different calculation for themselves. They're going to make a different decision on whether they want to meet with um, an elderly grandparent or um, someone who, you know, may have cancer and be on active treatment for chemo, you know, with chemotherapy that may be very immunocompromised and very susceptible to getting this and having a very serious outcome. So people are still dying, even if they're vaccinated and boosted. It's not a panacea. It's not going to it's not going to keep you from everything. And the people that are dying are those who are very immunocompromised. So it's important to keep that in mind as we talk about protecting our community members and especially those who are most vulnerable, but also as we kind of assess our personal risks and decisions and what what we're going to do and who we're going to see in the coming days after we meet with a lot of people, for example. Um, you know, so I didn't do anything for New Year's Eve, nothing at all. (laughs) But I also knew my mother-in-law was coming in town um, and that she would be passing through. And I didn't want her to be at any risk um, because we had done any, you know, anything now. There are lots of reasons why I didn't do anything for New Year's Eve, but but that's part of the calculation. I don't want to, I don't want to get someone sick who could have a, a worse outcome than, than myself. Um, just about out of time here. I just uh, tried to ask a number of questions. Anything you would like to add before we wrap it up? You know, I want to add that um, that our city should be really proud of, of um, what we've done as a city, um, what our residents have done in coming together and having such high vaccination rates, um, what our team has done um, as a health department and as a city. The whole city has been involved in the health department. So it's it's not just for the health department. Um, you know, the, the numbers of services that we've provided are really remarkable. Um, I can tell you that as of last night, we had done over 86,000 vaccines, 86,000 um, vaccines. For a city that's about 100,000. Yeah. And um, we have done over 95,000 tests. 
Um, it's still a huge number. Yeah. A huge number. Yeah. Really, really incredible. Um, really incredible. Everything that our city has done and that our residents have done to come together and try to be part of the solution in this crazy time. I know the mayor asked you how you and your staff are doing because you've been busy. And I'm sure a lot of city staff would be that way, but your department in, in particular. And I think the answer you gave was something close to you're kind of holding your own. Uh, how would, would you say that's accurate? Uh, you know, we're, we're stepping up. We're, <laughs> we're doing what needs to be done. You know, we, we can't do this forever. So <laughs> we need everybody to help. And I think the hospitals are in the same boat right now, too. You know, this has been a long couple of years um, for anyone in public health and anyone in healthcare anywhere. Um, and we need your help. We need, we need everyone's help kind of doing those little things that, that you can do to uh, make this not worse. Monica Helch, you always have great information and guidance. Uh, thank you for spending some time with me today. Thanks, Larry. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you like the podcast, please let others know. You can find it on most platforms where you go for podcasts. Just search using this phrase, Podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N. Also, if you listen on a platform such as iTunes, please take a moment, rate, and comment on my podcast series. So thanks for listening, and please be safe and be kind. Be safe and be kind.